Before we look further at God's Word together, let me pray for uh, Him to illuminate our hearts. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity we have again as your people to sit under your Word and to hear you speaking to us through it. We pray that you would do that this morning. Uh, We pray that we would hear you through the work of your Spirit, um, speaking to our hearts and to our lives and encouraging, encouraging us on the life's journey of faith to which you've called us. Amen. Okay, I've got an opening question to test your alertness this morning. What do all the following have in common? The Bradys, the Waltons, the Flintstones, the Cunninghams, the Simpsons. Any ideas? What's that, Tori? None of them are real. Well, yeah, a, probably don't pursue that tangent. They're all on TV. Oh, they're all families. Oh, good, good. So let's just test your TV show awareness. The, the Cunninghams, which, um, which family was, which show was that? Happy Days. Remember Happy Days? Yes, okay. Here's a, a more modern one The Crawleys. Downton Abbey, there we go, there we go, okay, so lots of wonderful TV shows about families, because, believe it or not, we all like stories of families, and what we're going to see in our text today is that Genesis is all about families, and in particular, one special family, uh, the terrors, not the terrors as in the little horrors, but terror spelt T-E-R-A-H-S. So, I don't know what their surname was, but uh, the, the focus of the text now comes onto the terrors, the terror family. Uh, chapter 11, verse 27 says, this is the account, that is, the family history of terror. Now, the terror family is not quite as much a household name today as maybe the Simpsons or the Crawleys, And they definitely don't have the same entertainment value. Uh, So the question is, why should we be interested in them? And the answer is, because the Terra family is one of the most important families ever. Uh, They are absolutely pivotal in human history. Uh, They are the center of God's purposes for the world, unlike the Crawleys, believe it or not. And at first sight, this focus on one family may seem rather strange, Because as we move through Genesis, uh, chapters 1 to 11, uh, suddenly there's this gear change at chapter 12 onwards. And it feels a bit like switching from the SBS World News to Downton Abbey. Uh, Chapters 1 to 11 have been uh, the events on a global scale. The world events, uh, creation, the fall, the flood, and the scattering of the people after Babel. But now in chapter 12 onwards, the focus zooms down onto just one family. But the reason is, as I've already indicated, that the terrors are one of the most important families in the history of the world. And the key man in the terror family is the man we've looked at this week, Abraham. Uh, Genesis is actually divided into 11 sections uh, overall, each beginning with, uh, this is the account of, or literally, these are the generations of. Uh, If you're a Hebrew scholar, you will know that uh, In Hebrew thinking, uh, what is most important comes in the middle. And so if you've got 11 sections, 
Now, you don't have to be a super mathematician to work out. The middle section is there for the, the sixth. Thank you. You are a wonderful mathematician, Rod. Yes, the sixth one. And in those 11 sections in Genesis, lo and behold, who is the middle section all about? Abram. That's right. You've got it. It runs from chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through to chapter 25, verse 18. And Abram is the main man, the key figure. Now, what we're going to see are there are two key themes running through uh, these Abram accounts. Uh, firstly, God's plan of salvation. And secondly, our response of faith. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. So firstly, uh, God's plan of salvation. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 9. It's a very short part of Genesis, but actually it is the most important passage in the whole of Genesis. And in it, God reveals his manifesto. He reveals his manifesto for the salvation of the world. Uh, God appears to Abram whilst he's living in Ur the Chaldeans. Uh, in its day, Ur was one of the main ports of Babylonia. We have a, a map of it here. Uh, there it is. Uh, as you can see now, it's actually quite significantly inland, but uh, in its day, it was actually a port. So uh, the coastline has shifted significantly over the thousands of years since. And there was this, um, this was the family base of the Terra family. Interestingly, um, Ur itself was excavated in the 1920s to 1930s. Uh, it was a huge 13-year uh, archaeological venture uh, organized by Sir Leonard Woolley. And here is one of the things he found, uh, the picture of the ziggurat of Ur. And the, the dig revealed some staggering uh, historical and archaeological facts about the dark pagan past of Ur. Uh, there was a huge burial death pit for Queen Puabi, uh, which also had 73 servants in it with her, arranged around her body in an act of great gross human sacrifice for her funeral. Uh, the ziggurat itself would likely have topped, been topped with a temple of Nana. Uh, Nana is not uh, your mum's mum. Uh, this is the moon god. And so it was a very dark pagan place. Uh, later, Joshua would remind the Israelites of their dark pagan past when he says in Joshua 24, Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abram, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, that's the river Euphrates, and worshipped other gods. So you see, uh, during the ten generations from Noah um, through Shem to Abraham, things have gone from good to bad to worse. Uh, now darkness is gathering. Uh, the dark rebellious spirit of Babel, even though they were dispersed, has continued in human hearts. And pagan idolatry is rife throughout the land. And yet... Into this darkness, God shines his light. Into this seemingly hopeless situation, God takes the initiative. God appears to this pagan man, Abram, and he makes incredible promises. In effect, God launches his salvation man manifesto. And what we see is this. It's grounded in God's grace. It's grounded in God's undeserved favor. Uh, notice what it, God says he will do. Uh, look again at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said, had said to Abram, Leave your country 
your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There it is. God's salvation manifesto. His undeserved favor to reverse the curse of the fall and to restore his blessing to all the people of the earth. And what we see when we look more closely at it uh, is that it's a bit like a rope made up, made up of three strands interwoven together. And the first part of this salvation manifesto is the strand of land. God calls Abram and his family to leave Ur and later Haran and to set up home in the land he promised them. In chapter 12, verse 5, it's described as the land of Canaan. And in chapter 12, verse 7, God promises, to your offspring I will give this land. And then when we get to chapter 15, which we will in a few weeks' time, a few more geographical markers are given. Uh, it says um, in chapter 15, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, if you are alert and aware of what's happened so far in Genesis, this will be ringing bells. Because these boundaries don't describe just Canaan. They're also the boundaries of Eden and the Garden of Delight in chapter 2. And indeed, uh, chapter 13 of Genesis, chapter uh, verse 10, describes the Canaan as like the garden of the Lord. You see what has been promised here? It's being a promise of a return to a paradise setting. That is what God is promising. And according to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16, Abram realized that. And he lived in the land of promise in a tent as a foreigner because... Chapter 11, verse 10 of Hebrews. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward. He didn't yet have what was promised in all its fullness. But he went and he lived there, trusting that in good time God would fulfill his promise in all its fullness. And he saw himself, therefore, as a stranger, as an exile on earth. Because he was seeking, as Hebrews 11 says in verse 16, a better country, a heavenly one. Bring it to us today. The same promise is made by God, this gracious God, to us in the gospel. If you are a Christian, the reality is you will never be truly at home in this life. You were never meant to be like it is now. Like Abraham, we are aliens and strangers here, longing for the heavenly country. So that's the first strand of God's salvation manifesto. It is the, the strand of land. The second strand is the strand of people. Because even the most wonderful place can be lonely without people, without relationships. And that is what God promises, a people, a wonderful family together. Chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. Abram, of course, was just one man, but God promises him 
countless descendants, which as we know at that point was a very big promise given that his wife Sarai was barren. And of course, God expands on the promise. He drives home to Abraham just exactly what he is promising. Uh, chapter 13, verse 16, uh, he says to Abraham that, Abraham that, look down at the ground, and he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Now, by the end of Genesis, uh, there is a grand total of 70, uh, which is not very impressive, but it's the beginning. But by the time the nation of Israel returned from exile, there is only a few thousand of them left. What is happening to God's promise of a great nation? And of course, when we get to the New Testament, Galatians sheds new light on this promise. Because Galatians 3 tells us that the true descendants of Abram are actually those who have faith in Christ. In other words, the Christian church is ultimately the great nation promised to Abram. The Christian church is the countless multitudes like the dust of the ground that appear, of course, before the throne in Revelation chapter 7. This is the countless multitude who are citizens in heaven. They are finally in the promised land. So you see what this strand of God's salvation manifesto points to. A people of God in joyful fellowship together. And therefore, we are all journey together on the journey to, ultimately, life in the new creation. But we are a people together now, called to go together on that journey. And that is why the local church is so important, because we journey together. And therefore, this is part of the richness of the Christian journey, fellowshipping together on the journey to the new creation. The third strand of God's salvation manifesto is blessing. And that, in a sense, holds all the other strands together. And it's the key term in Genesis. It actually comes up five times in chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Of course, look back to Genesis chapter 1. There we have it. God blesses the world and mankind. At the fall, the blessing is lost. God's judgment and curse rightly come on the, on the world. After the flood, God mercifully agrees to not bring another flood again to wipe out all of life on the earth. Even though the darkness of the human heart is still dark. But now in God's salvation manifesto, he begins to unveil his plan to bring blessing to a rebel world. In our society today, we tend to uh, devalue uh, the sense of God's blessing. Uh, what happens when you sneeze? What do people say? God bless you. It always irritates me when people say that. I think, what on earth do you mean? Uh, of course, the origin of it was um, back with Pope Gregory in the 6th century. He was, uh, his hope that he could ward off the plague by so doing. But uh, these days... It just becomes something which people say without really thinking. God bless you. It sort of devalues it, doesn't it? A sense of God's blessing. But of course, God's blessing is actually the most precious thing we can ever have. The Bible expresses it in different ways. One of the ways is uh, this whole sense of shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, which means 
peace and flourishing under God, living in rich relationship with Him and His people in His world. The blessing of God. And of course, at the very heart of that blessing is God Himself. Relationship with the God for whom we have been made. Intimate communion with Him and with each other under His blessing. And so you see, that is what God is, is promising here. His blessing in all of its richness. And how will it come to the world? It will come, of course, through Abram and his descendants. Chapter 12, verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And of course, that is the reality. All peoples on earth are ultimately blessed through Abram. Because Jesus is, as we know, the descendant of Abram, who brings the blessing of God in all its fullness to the world. Galatians chapter 3 picks up on this, uh, verse 14. The blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. And so it is through Jesus, of course, that we have this ultimate blessing of shalom, life in all its richness, under the rule of God, in all its flourishing. Do you see the point, therefore? Uh, back in Abraham's day, uh, God says, whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And we see that played out, actually, in the chapters that follow. Uh, those who ally themselves with Abraham, uh, they in turn are blessed. But those who oppose Abraham and even, uh, in some instances, take his wife unknowingly, they actually find out that they're up against the living God. God is on Abram's side. And to cross with Abram is ultimately to cross with God. To bless Abram is to ultimately sit under, Abram, under God's blessing. And the same is true, of course, when it comes to the descendants of Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because to accept Christ is to accept God's blessing. But to reject Christ is ultimately to go against God and ultimately to incur His curse. So in Christ is all of God's blessing, but to reject Him, to ignore Him, is ultimately to bring God's curse upon us because God's purposes are perfectly aligned with that descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom He brings the blessing to all the world. So that's the first thing we've seen. Uh, we've firstly looked at God's salvation manifesto. But let's now move on to think and look at our response, the response of faith. Because Abraham is an amazing example of a person who responded in faith to God's promises. Uh, he moves forward. Uh, he models faith in a way which is exemplary to us today. Uh, if you want to understand faith, there's probably no better person to go to than Abram. Because in Abram, we see that faith is not a feeling. It's actually an act of trust in God and in His promises. It's a stepping out. It's a taking of risk, believing that what God says can be trusted and He will actually do. So, let's look again at chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. 
It's easy to skip over that. Just to go, yep, he's been called to set off on a journey. No big deal, but believe me, for Abram, this was a huge deal. This is no small task. Actually, what we see here is there's an ascending order of personal cost and risk. God says, firstly, leave your country. Well, that's a big call. Uh, leave your people. Uh, the focus is getting narrower. Leave your father's household. Now, that is really calling him to step out. Uh, at this stage, he's not even told specifically where he's going. Uh, there are no coordinates given by God for Abram's sat-nav. It's simply, go to the land I will show you. And yet, what does Abraham do? Abram do? He steps out into the future in response to God's promise. And all he has is the vaguest of outlines sketched by the promises of God. At verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him. He steps out. He trusts in God's promises. The destination was sketchy, but he believes it will ultimately be worth it. And the New Testament confirms this was a great act of faith in the face of great uncertainty. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And what a journey it would prove to be. I have a map here of the journey. Uh, it's the, the green part. And it's probably a distance of, it's estimated, 1,200 kilometers, which would have taken him many years, uh, through unknown territory. He has to leave the security of his homeland with his own people. He has to move through lands and people groups who may well be hostile to him and to his family and entourage. And yet, what does he do? He goes. God calls him, and he goes. He uproots his life, and he acts in response to the promise. What would such faith look like for us today? The equivalence and the parallel for us today is this. God calls us in the gospel to leave behind our old life, to turn to faith in Christ, and to set out on a journey, on a journey to the new creation, the heavenly country, the promised land. And God calls us, therefore, to become, in many ways, aliens and strangers in this world on our journey to that heavenly country. You see, now we only have scant details of how good life will be in the new creation. Now we're told it will be shalom, life in all its fullness, a life of flourishing under God's blessing. But we only have the scantest outlines of it now. It will be a rich life, we know that, an intimate relationship with God and with each other. It will be a life without friction, without hatred, without strife and discord. A life without depression. A life devoid of sickness, death and decay. It's sketched for us. We see the outline, but we don't see it in all its glorious technicolor yet. It's a promise in the future, and we don't have it yet in the present. And faith's response is to continue on the journey, knowing that God will deliver what he's promised. Faith steps out in trust, although the future may only be sketchy. 
And the other thing we'll close with is that we don't just see that Abram is a model of faith, because also we see in Abram the struggle of faith. Uh, the New Testament writers focus on Abram as the model of faith, but when we read the, actually the Old Testament account, it's clear that Abram himself struggled in his faith at times. And when we see that, the point is this for you and me. Actually, this is quite encouraging because if he struggled, the great man of faith, now that means, yes, for you and me, there will be times when we also struggle like Abram in our faith journey. Uh, Abram struggled to be consistent in his faith. Uh, chapter 12, verse 10, uh, we have this instant, there's a famine, and he's got to go to Egypt. And yet he realizes he's in a bit of a precarious situation. Uh, his wife may well be taken from him. He may actually lose his life. And so what does he do? Now, does he trust God as he goes into that foreign, hostile land? There comes a point where his faith buckles. He decides he has to take things into his own hands. He decides he has to resort to his own means. Uh, he lies. He deceives. He says, actually, Sarah, say I'm your brother, not your husband. And that way my life will be safe. And of course, the wheels start to come off one when Pharaoh himself takes Sarai into his harem. What a contrast to the man of faith. When it comes to us today, it encourages us that on our life journey, there will be times when we struggle. And we follow Abram's example, but there will be times when our journey involves stumbling. It involves testing times. It involves times when the, the sketchy outline we're promised maybe fades a little bit and we just are overwhelmed by the present. Because the reality is sometimes we can be, feel overwhelmed by the situations we face. We can be faced by very perplexing, difficult choices. And like Abram, we are prone to succumb to fear and to resort to our own ways to sort the problems out. And maybe that is your situation today. And yet, the encouragement is from God's Word to keep on in the journey, to keep trusting God in faith, not resort to our own devices, but to live it out God's way and to continue on the journey and to ask Him for fresh, deeper faith to keep trusting Him every step of the way. Abram was a great man of faith. And in him we see the model of faith, but we also see the struggle of faith. And that should encourage us not to despair. And it should also challenge us to make sure our faith in God's promises is a growing faith, a maturing faith, as Abram's was. Our faith is a bit like a muscle, and it grows stronger the more we use it, and it grows weaker the less we use it. So let's continue to move forward in Christ-centered trust, anchored in the promises of God of the glorious heavenly city, life in shalom under all of God's blessing and flourishing. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious, undeserved initiative, your salvation manifesto, which promises us blessing, a reversal of the curse, ultimately life, in a restored, perfected world, uh, life in shalom, uh, peaceful flourishing 
and a blessing, unending blessing under your rule and, under, uh, and in fellowship with you and each other. We pray, therefore, that as we journey together on this journey of faith to the new creation, uh, you would encourage us on that journey to keep a Christ-centered trust every step of the way. Please help us, we pray, and help us to support each other on that journey. And we pray this to, the, to your glory. Amen.